Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, the book of Matthew, chapter three, continued. If we were to do a deep comparison between the four gospel accounts that open the New Testament, it would become evident that each gospel writer approaches the matter of the advent, life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah with his own unique mindset and his own perspective, and that he has a specific purpose as well as audience for his gospel in mind. For instance, Mark expresses zero interest in Yeshua's background as a youth, and he only speaks about him starting with the day Christ's ministry begins. He outlines Christ's life and actions in an orderly but rather abrupt way that, in my opinion, reads like a biography. Luke is trying to please his customer and patron, Theophilus. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was, but his was certainly a Roman Gentile name. Luke doesn't seem to expect Theophilus to know much about Jewish tradition or history, and so he takes the time to explain certain things about, about Jewish history and tradition, explaining things that Matthew, for instance, wouldn't have. Because Matthew was a Jew writing to other Jews, and so most Jewish concepts needed no clarification. John also expected his readers to be mostly Jewish, and thus familiar with Jewish tradition, familiar with the Holy Scriptures. Therefore, the opening sentence of his gospel, John's gospel, speaks of this uniquely concept, uh, uniquely Hebrew concept of the Word. And he does it without any further explanation, he just throws it out there. Most Jews would know what the term the Word was pointing to but the vast majority of Gentile believers would not. The Memra represented a mysterious manifestation of God that had to do with the power of speech, as in God spoke the universe into existence. The term itself comes from the Hebrew root word Amar, which means to say. The Hebrew Mimra was translated to the Greek Logos, which has to do with speech and speaking. But while Mimra had a spiritual connotation within the Jewish community, Logos did not have such a connotation within the Roman Gentile community. Matthew, like John, wrote in a way that had certain expectations of his readers, and that included knowledge of Hebrew history and Hebrew custom. But Matthew seems to have expected even more of his readers than did John. Therefore, as we discussed in the prior lesson, Matthew wrote with this ever-present backdrop of Yeshua being the second Moses. Now this is something the Jews would have related to. More specifically, Yeshua was the prophet like me that Moses said in the Torah would eventually come. Matthew at times also made some um, obscure connections between words of the ancient prophets and certain events within the life of Jesus. Even a well-educated Gentile would have had a rough time trying to understand how Matthew could legitimately make some of these associations 
such that Jesus, or an event associated with him, became the prophetic fulfillment of that prophet's words. However, a Jew of that era, probably a more studied one, would understand that Matthew was using one of the four different methods of Bible interpretation that the scribes and sages employed in order to make his point. Again, such knowledge would have been outside the scope of what Gentiles, including believers, could typically have understood. Now, since we are 20 centuries distant from the writing of Matthew's Gospel and the cultures that existed at that time, we're going to step through Matthew's Gospel at a careful pace. And I'm going to do my best to help you climb into the mindset of a first century Jew in order to understand where Matthew's coming from. What he meant by what he said. We're going to discuss a number of terms, some of which are rather standard in Christianity, such as baptism and the kingdom of heaven, because often we're going to see that what it meant to first century Jews is not exactly how the church has come to define it. So as we begin Matthew chapter 3, Actually, we started last week. John the Baptist was introduced to us. We're going to reread this entire chapter today so that we can have a good foundation for today's teaching. So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1225, 1225. Follow along with me, please. Matthew chapter 3. It was during those days that Yochanan the Immerser arrived in the desert of Judah and began proclaiming the message, Turn from your sins to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the man that Yeshayahu, Isaiah, was talking about when he said, The voice of someone crying out, In the desert prepare the way of Adonai, make straight paths for him. Yochanan wore clothes of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem, from all Judah, from the whole region around the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were immersed by him in the Jordan River. But when Yochanan saw many of the Parushim and Sadukim, Pharisees and Sadducees, coming to be immersed by him, he said to them, Why, you snakes! Who warned you to escape the coming punishment? If you've really turned from your sins to God, produce fruit. That will prove it. And don't suppose you can comfort yourselves by just saying, Abraham is our father. For I tell you, God can raise up for Abraham sons from these stones. Already the axe is at the root of the trees ready to strike. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is going to be chopped down and thrown into that fire. It's true. I am immersing you in water so that you might turn from sin to God, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. And he will immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and in fire. And he has with him his winnowing fork and he's going to clear out his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, burning up the straw with unquenchable fire. Then Yeshua came from the Galil, Galilee to the Jordan to be immersed by Yochanan, by John. But John tried to stop him. You're coming to me. I ought to be immersed by you. However, Yeshua answered him, let it be this way now because we should do everything righteousness requires. Then Yochanan led him, and as soon as Yeshua had been immersed, he came up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened. 
And he saw the Spirit of God coming down upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. The first verse proclaims that John the Baptist began his ministry in the desert of Judea. And since there are a few Johns in the New Testament, recognize that this is not John the Apostle, an original disciple of Yeshua, who is also the writer of his own gospel and of three more letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. This is a very unique John, whose story begins in other gospels, but not in Matthew's, when he was still in his mother's womb. The desert of Judea is speaking of the southern end of the Jordan River Valley. It extends all the way past the Dead Sea, all the way down to that finger of the Red Sea known today as the Gulf of Aqaba, over which Moses miraculously led the Israelites through parted waters as they fled Pharaoh and his army. There were several religious communities that lived in that desolate region in the first century, seeking peace and separation from both the Romans and from the corrupt temple authorities. But none was larger nor more famous than the sect of the Essens who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, the discovery of which in the mid-20th century opened an entire new vista of understanding and study of the Old Testament and of Jewish history. It is nearly impossible to imagine John not living among one or more of those communities during his years of preparation in that barren desert. So today there is much speculation about his possible involvement with the essence of Qumran. Perhaps the greatest evidence of his involvement in Qumran is that he uses very similar terms and phrases that are found among the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls in the section known as the Community Documents. My opinion is that John the Baptist indeed spent significant time with the essence, although he did not become one of them. Still, we're not going to spend any of our time with this matter because it really doesn't advance our study of Matthew, nor is there any firm evidence either way to, to hang our hats on. Now, John's twofold message that he brought to the Jewish community was that people needed to turn away from their sins and return to God. And that this was in preparation for the imminent coming of the Kingdom of Heaven. Now in verse 3, Matthew once again connects an ancient prophetic oracle with the events surrounding the advent of Yeshua. This time it is about John the Baptist. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, A voice cries out, Clear a road through the desert for Adonai, level a highway in the Arabah for our God. Now, different Bible versions will quote this passage differently, but they all amount to the same thing. Someone coming from the desert of Judea is going to announce the arrival of God or someone God is sending. The differences among Bible versions come mainly from taking Isaiah's quote either from the Hebrew Tanakh or from the Greek Septuagint. Although it is agreed by Judaism and Christianity that this passage is prophetic, of the coming of a Messiah. In reality, at the time it was written, the context was of the return of the Jews from their captivity in Babylon. Now I've taught you before that it is the Jewish way, a way we often find in the New Testament, to quote only a few words, perhaps a couple of sentences, 
from an Old Testament book expecting the reader then to know the remainder. In other words, Jews knew the context of that brief quote, but Gentile Christians usually didn't and frankly still don't. So I think it's worth our time to see the context for ourselves. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 39. We're going to start at verse 5 and we're going to continue on through Isaiah 40 verse 11. So open your Bibles, again that's to Isaiah 39. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, uh, let's see, we're going to start on page 495. 495. Starting at verse 5. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear what Adonai Sefaot says. The day will come when everything in your palace, along with everything your ancestors stored up until today, will be carried off to Babel. Nothing will be left, says Adonai. They will carry off some of your descendants, your own offspring and they will be made eunuchs, serving in the palace of the king of Babel." He's Kiao. That's Hezekiah said to Yeshayao, Isaiah, The word of Adonai which you have just told me is good, because he thought at least peace and truth will continue during my lifetime. Comfort and keep comforting my people, says your God. Tell Jerusalem to take heart. Proclaim to her that she has completed her time of service, that her guilt has been paid off, that she has received at the hand of Adonai double for all of her sins. A voice cries out, Clear a road through the desert for Adonai, level a highway and the Erevah for our God. Let every valley be filled in, every mountain and hill lowered, the bumpy places made level, the crags become a plain. Then the glory of Adonai will be revealed. All humankind together will see it, for the mouth of Adonai has spoken. A voice says, Proclaim! And I answer, What should I proclaim? All humanity is merely grass, all its kindness like wildflowers. The grass dries up, the flower fades, when a wind from Adonai blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass dries up, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You who bring the good news to Sion, to Zion, get yourself up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, cry out at the top of your voice. Don't be afraid to shout out loud. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Here comes Adonai Elohim with power, and his arm will rule for him. Look, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. He is like a shepherd feeding his flock, gathering his lambs with his arm, carrying them against his chest, gently leading the mother sheep. We see from this passage in context, that it is related to the Jews' return from Babylon. Yet, clearly from the way these verses are written, the fullest fulfillment of this prophecy is much wider, it's more grand than only the Jews coming home from Babylon. Now from a Jewish viewpoint, Matthew would say that the Remez of this passage speaks of the Messiah, even though the Peshat is about returning from Babylon. Now go review the previous lesson if you're not clear about the terms Remez and Peshat. It was also understood among Jews that the person who is crying out, the one who is preparing the way for the Lord, is Elijah. Speaking of John the Baptist, Matthew says this in chapter 11. Verse 14, Indeed, if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Eliyahu, he's Elijah, whose coming was predicted. 
Now Elijah's return was a prediction found in the prophet Malachi. Malachi 3.23, Look, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. I want to point out that depending on your Bible version, by the way, that verse could appear as Malachi 4.5 or 4.6 in addition to 3.23. So it's just whichever version you have. Now it's here that we need to pause, we need to take a couple of brief detours to explain some terms. Now because John is called the Baptist, or in terms more familiar to the minds of Jews, the Immerser, I'd like to discuss this concept of baptism. For Jews to be immersed, or baptizine in the language of the Greeks, it meant it was meant in the same sense that you would dye a cloth. That is, you dip a cloth into a vat of colored dye, and when it's removed that cloth has taken on the characteristics, the color, of that dye. However, for Jews, this, this dipping, this absorbing of characteristics was also meant in a religious context that revolved around ritual purity. Now, Before a Jew could present his offering at the temple, he first had to be immersed in one of the several mikveh that were located either in or near the temple grounds. This immersion was in obedience to several passages in, in Leviticus, which prescribed this immersion and this washing to remedy any of a number of causes for the worshiper to have become ritually impure. Now I think the most important thing to notice is less the exact method of immersion and more what the immersion is about. Historically for Jews, immersion was about ritual cleansing from spiritual impurity. But John said, and he'd amplify on this later, that this new immersion that he brought was not for cleansing from ritual purity, uh, impurity, but rather it was from cleansing from sin. Now I want to impress upon you that impurity and sin are two entirely different things and they cause two entirely different human conditions and outcomes. Impurity is not sin. Impurity could almost always be set right with what I call a wash and a wait. That is, most of the reasons for becoming ritually impure could be solved by the worshiper immersing him or herself in living water and then waiting until a new day began, which is at sunset. So the remedy for impurity was usually quick and painless. Theoretically, it cost nothing. Few or the more serious reasons for impurity did require more extensive procedures and a, a longer wait time. But the remedy for sin always involved an animal sacrifice upon the temple altar, which ranged from inexpensive animals like birds all the way up to the hefty price tag of a mature bull. Impurity was cured with water. Sin was cured with the blood of an innocent animal. Jews were acutely aware of this difference. I want to be clear. It is not that, according to John, an immersion in water now itself atoned for sin. It's not what's going on here. Rather, it is that when one trusted in the one that John was preparing the way for, 
Immersing in the water now was symbolic of taking on the characteristics of the one who atones for sins. We're going to soon see that it was symbolic also of identifying specifically with Christ. Now, this also did not mean that immersion in water to remedy ritual impurity would, it, would come to an end. Rather, it was that one would have to declare what this immersion was for. What's it all about? Now, while many Pharisees and scribes would argue from the position of Jewish tradition, that there was indeed a kind of supernatural nature in the living water of a river or a lake or in the mikvehs that had an actual physical effect upon the human body sufficient to remove, to remove the toxic impurity, others of the more learned and enlightened Jews understood that the effect of immersion was symbolic on the one hand, but it was also in obedience to the command of God on the other. So whatever physical effect that ritual impurity that, that there might be on the body or the soul was erased by God in response to righteous obedience to the Law of Moses. It was not because water literally washed it away like dirt coming off a body when taking a bath. Now it's interesting that although the term baptizane means to immerse, hundreds of years ago the church began the practice of sprinkling. Now how sprinkling can be the same as immersing I don't know, except that my suspicion is that as with nearly everything else in early Gentile Christianity, goal number one of the bishops was to separate Gentile Christians from Jewish practices, including those that were biblically ordained. David Stearns notes that in the 16th and 17th centuries, some in the church revolted against this rather dubious substitution of sprinkling for immersion, and the first groups to break away appropriately called themselves Baptists. Now, as to the actual immersion process, so far as the ancient documents tell us, a Jew was not dunked by another person. Rather, it was self immersion. Even today, there is often a supervisor at a mikveh to make sure that a person is a hundred percent unclothed, has no open wounds on them, and that every last hair becomes submerged. And they watch for a few other violations as well. We do read that John is said to have baptized people. And this is usually taken to mean that he physically immersed worshipers. But his role was probably that of a supervisor. And to have the immersion candidate publicly declare just exactly what their immersion was meant to accomplish. Now, while I advocate for self immersion with supervision, it is after all the way it was done among the Jews who invented the process. I also don't take the position that if a person is dunked by another, that such baptism is inferior or invalid. But as for sprinkling, hmm, I have a little stronger position against that. Except in a case where a person lives in some primitive place to where water is so scarce that immersion is simply not an option. Having a few drops of water flicked on you is not immersion. Therefore, it's not baptizing. 
Neither is the practice of baptizing infants or small children efficacious because they have no choice of their wills in this matter. And the choice of your will is all important. If you are one who was sprinkled or perhaps baptized as a child before the age of accountability, my advice is go be properly baptized as soon as possible. Now, as a somewhat shorter detour, I now want to talk about the term the Kingdom of Heaven. This term has essentially the same meaning as and is fully interchangeable with the term the Kingdom of God. So I will alternate those two terms throughout our study of Matthew. Now, the reason that some Jews preferred the term Kingdom of Heaven is because they didn't want to use the word God. And this was due to a taboo of saying His name that began around 300 BC. I think it is fair to say that the more strict Jews, no doubt many of the Holy Land Jews as opposed to the Diaspora Jews, more carefully avoided using the term God in any context. It is noteworthy that Matthew is the one Gospel writer who almost exclusively uses the term the Kingdom of Heaven instead of the Kingdom of God. Because as for the other three Gospel writers, it's totally the reverse. It is all the more reason that I view Matthew as not only the most Jewish of all the Gospels, but also that Matthew himself was a learned and a pious Holy Land Jew. Now the term Kingdom of Heaven or Kingdom of God is directly connected to the ultimate, to the concept of ultimate restoration of God's creation. Christ is quoted as saying this in Luke 17, 20 and 21. The Pharisees act, asked Yeshua when the Kingdom of God would come. He responds, The Kingdom of God, he answered, does not come with visible signs. Nor will people be able to say, Oh look, here it is! Oh, over there! Because you see, the Kingdom of God is among you. Now, the complete Jewish Bible, along with the majority of Bible translations, says that the Kingdom of God is among you. It implies, really, that Christ Himself is the Kingdom of God, which is not biblical. The word being translated is entos, which the various Greek lexicons says means within, inside. It does not mean in the midst. It does not mean among. In other words, the Kingdom of Heaven is not a place. It's not a time. It's a state of being. It is a state of being whereby all has been restored to its original perfection. All is new. The universe is now forever free from sin and from death. In the biblical context, it also means that all living beings, quite naturally, now glorify God as the ruler over all things. But what does John the Baptist mean by the kingdom of heaven is near? Well, first, it doesn't indicate proximity, since the Kingdom of Heaven is not a time or a place or even a creature. Rather it is that the arrival of the state of being called the Kingdom of Heaven is a process and it involves many stages. John the Baptist's presence and ministry is its beginning. Because he is the one 
who will prepare the way and announce the arrival of God's agent, Yeshua, who will eventually bring it about. The kingdom of heaven will only be a partial state of being until the devil and his minions are no more and the new heaven and new earth arrive. Even the millennial kingdom, the thousand years reign of Messiah, will not be the fullest fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven because we know that sin and death and even rebellion against God will occur during that span of time and especially right at its end. Now, for now in our day, by trusting in our Savior, Yeshua, we can have the kingdom of heaven such as it currently is within us. That is, its ideals and goals, its hopes and its helps, they will all be present within us. We can choose to live holy lives that reflect the perfection of the kingdom of heaven in determined obedience to God as we wait for the kingdom and all of its completeness to arrive universally. I want to say this another way. For now, only in believers, hopefully you, does the kingdom of heaven exist on earth. That's a pretty big responsibility. Verse 4 says that John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. In 2 Kings 1.8, we read this about the prophet Elijah. He was a hairy man, they answered him, with a leather belt around his waist. He said it was Elijah from Tishbe. Interestingly, other Bible versions say he wore a hairy garment with a leather belt around his waist. It's Elijah the Tishbite. I can't prove which is the correct translation. However, since Matthew seeks to connect, if you'll notice, Elijah and John together, with John as essentially the new Elijah, it can't be any coincidence that John's appearance was described as hairy and with a leather belt, just like Elijah. Eating locusts and wild honey, by the way, is not the Jews' regular diet, but it was survival food. But as this, the ascetic monk that John was, that this is what he was said to have eaten, well, fits his persona. Certain kinds of locusts are considered kosher food for Jews. You find this in Leviticus chapter 11. It may not sound particularly appetizing to us, but the Hebrews weren't and aren't the only culture that finds eating certain insects to be an acceptable addition to their diet. But what is this wild honey that John also lived off of? Probably it is bee honey taken from colonies of bees that made hives in trees and carcasses of dead animals and so on. In other words, beehives that were not cultivated by humans. Now I say this because very interestingly, quite literally until the last couple of years, it was believed that man-made beehives and bee husbandry was a relatively late development, came far later in history. However, about three years ago, in an archaeological dig in Rehov, which is in northern Israel, a large cache of man-made beehives was discovered, and it was dated to 900 BC. This is just after the time of King Solomon. These are by far the oldest beehives ever discovered anywhere in the world. 
So it seems that the current scholarly take that the biblical term honey meant a sweet extract taken from dates is going to have to be revamped. And therefore there truly was cultivated honey and there was wild honey and both were a product of honeybees just like we would find it today. The point is this, John the Baptist lived a life that was not connected to regular Jewish society and he did it by choice and by divine inspiration. He wore the outfit of an ancient prophet, no doubt to identify himself with that profession, if not the actual person of Elijah. In fact, I think it's reasonable to ask ourselves what the attraction was to John such that in verse 5 we read that people from Jerusalem and all Judea went to him to be immersed. Their purpose, we're told, was to confess their sins. Now, this was in no way symbolic at that moment of a conscious identity with Christ because Christ hadn't yet even begun his ministry. Seems probable to me that many people in the Holy Land region and around Jerusalem thought that John indeed was the, re the prophesied return of Elijah. I mean, he looked like it, dressed like it, acted like it. What is it they say? If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and looks like a duck, it's probably a duck. It has been long known and can be easily gleaned from the New Testament that common everyday Jews in that era felt so oppressed by Rome that they were certain they had to be living in the prophesied end times. And since the prophet Malachi said that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord, meaning that Elijah would reappear in the end times, then it makes sense that John would be seen as Elijah, whether he confessed to it or not. In fact, when directly confronted about it, as recorded in John 1.21, the Baptist famously said he was not Elijah. Now, I suspect that in the same way Yeshua would be so elusive at first about admitting whether or not he was the Messiah, so it was that John was elusive enough about whether or not he was Elijah that even when he answered no, it just didn't matter to many of the people. They were convinced he was the second coming of Elijah. Now, this, of course, is only my opinion. Now, it's difficult to understand exactly why the people came to be immersed if it wasn't to see Elijah. It doesn't help much to read the other Gospels on this matter because they each give the meaning for folks wanting John's baptism as something a little bit different. One says it was for forgiveness of sins. Another says it was for repenting. Matthew says in one verse it was for confession and in another verse it was for repenting. John the Baptist is quoted as saying it was for avoiding God's wrath. This is probably, at least partly, why the next verse has the religious authorities from Jerusalem suddenly coming to investigate. If this was Elijah, or just another holy man who wanted to gain a following, you know what? They needed to know. So in verse 7, we find representatives of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to John to question him. John obviously did not welcome them, calling them vipers to their faces. But he also sarcastically asked who would warn them, <laughs> I love that, about the soon coming of God's wrath, implying they didn't know about it or they were not ready for it. I mean, there's so much to untangle here. First of all, Let's grasp that we have representatives of both halves of the Jews' dual religious system of that era showing up. 
The Pharisees represented the synagogue system, the Sadducees, the temple system. The, Sadduce the Pharisees and Sadducees were uneasy rivals, but they were not enemies. They were certainly unified in the motive of wanting to guard their own religious territory and authority. So the growing flocks of people seeking out John sent up a red flag. That John characterized the two representatives' visit as trying to avoid God's coming wrath once again plays right into the Elijah in end times scenario because Elijah was believed throughout Judaism to appear shortly before the day of the Lord when God would indeed pour out His wrath. So apparently the common folk coming to John believed they were living in the end times, but without doubt the apostles Paul and Peter also believed they were living in the last days and they taught it to anyone who would listen. The people were fearful of it. And so possibly they came to participate in a ritual immersion from this very strange man, remember, who many thought was Elijah, in order to perhaps avoid God's wrath in some way that just isn't clear. I mean, would any of us or our neighbors be all that much different? Now, I have no doubt that when all hell breaks loose and the arrival of the end of days becomes apparent to those who at least harbor some measure of religious interest, people will want a very speedy way to purchase some kind of personal protection against God's wrath. And you can bet they will be accommodated by throngs of unscrupulous pastors, priests, and rabbis all too happy to take their money in return for a, a ritual, an amulet, a special prayer, a large donation. Anything that will give all those frightened people some comfort. But it'll be false comfort. In no way am I suggesting that this is what John was doing. But I suspect that a good portion of the crowd was coming in belief that they were going to get to see Elijah and they didn't want to miss an opportunity to be made right with God in those perilous times. There were plenty of charlatans seeking profit in John's day playing upon the fears and the vulnerability of the Jewish people, even though he was not one of them. But there is sufficient historical proof that these folks of the first century are not unlike Westerners of the 21st century that will go and seek out any number of religious-sounding people who claim they have the antidote to fix their finances, to cure illnesses, to predict the future, and to protect them from eternal damnation. Now verse 8 is one that needs to connect deeply within our souls, especially in these turbulent times that we live in. So I'd really like you to open your ears to what, what comes next. Has John, saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, representatives of the synagogue and the temple, that if they are sincerely coming to confess or to repent, then they need to bear fruit to prove it. This concept of fruit, meaning works, deeds, as the necessary proof of one's faith in the God of Israel is stated several times in various of the New Testament books. Maybe the one statement that perhaps is the most well-known is found in James, James 2, 15-18. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, and someone says to him, Shalom, keep warm, eat hearty, without giving him what he needs. So what good does it do? So faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. But someone who says, 
you have faith and I have actions. Well, then show me this faith of yours without the actions, and I'll show you my faith by my actions. Feeling sorry for people in need is not the same thing as taking action to help people in need. Good fruit is not our nice thoughts and well wishes. It is our physical, tangible deeds that we do to alleviate people's sufferings. While James uses this good fruit as proof of our faith, John uses it as proof of our sincerity. John then takes it one step farther by telling this, these religious authorities that simply being a Hebrew descended from Abraham, the father of all Hebrews, is not good enough to be in good stead with God. That is, being a Jew doesn't negate the need for personal forgiveness of sins and restoration and redemption or of performing good deeds. The takeaway is that sincere trust in God can only be proven by one's outward deeds and actions, which obviously begins with obedience to God. One's affiliation to a group, one's family heritage, does not include or exclude anyone from having peace with God. However, if there is no obedience and there's no good deeds and works to go along with a professed faith, actions and fruit described by the Holy Scriptures, then one's faith is to be legitimately doubted. This doesn't just concern a doubt of your true faith by the people in your social circle. The lack of good fruit ought to first and foremost be an alarm signal to oneself that perhaps we've been deceiving ourselves all along. As our Messiah so soberly warned us in Matthew 7, 19-23, Any tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you will recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many are going to say to me, but Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? And I'm going to tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. We'll continue in Matthew, Matthew chapter 3 next time. <music>